This morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 19. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there in a moment. We'll we'll have it up on the screen. So I'm not sure how many of you watched the show 24. Um, You don't have to, you know, tip your hand here. You can can just kind of give me the eye nod that, yeah, I saw it. You don't have to wave any hands. But um, if you watch the show 24, it's not on TV anymore. Um, some of you may even saw it on Netflix later or just watched it straight through on DVDs. Um, but you know that that show had one hour for each episode, and, and, and as you stacked up 24 episodes, they covered one day. And it was an epic day, usually. Uh, Jack Bauer would save the world from threats we didn't know existed at the beginning of the day. And, and it was a violent show, so I'm not necessarily commending it to you. But I bring it up because of where we're headed in Luke's gospel. So it may be a strange statement to say, uh, you know, Jack Bauer and where we're headed in Luke's gospel. I'm not making Jesus and Jack Bauer similarities or contrasts, perhaps. Um, I I bring it up because of a chronology thing. So in chapter 19, we're we're coming back to Luke's gospel. We've been away from it all fall. and, And really over the last two years, we've been in and out of the book. But this time when we go in, we're going in to finish. Um... And we're just a passage or two away from what is called the triumphal entry, which is the passage where Jesus rides into Jerusalem hailed as king. And when we hit that passage, so just in a week or two, Sunday-wise on our church, when we hit that passage, the chronology of the rest of the book of Luke just covers one week. And it's an epic week. It's the last week of Jesus' life. And so, in, I guess, in a weird way, in a similar way to watching 24, you know, one episode covers, you know, one hour of this long day, and over a season you watch the whole day, for the next few months we're going to watch one week unfold of Jesus' life. And what we're going to see this morning is Jesus, in our passage, is continuing the journey he's been on for some chapters, from up north in Galilee, northern Israel, to down south, to Jerusalem, to the cross. He's, he's on a mission to go to Jerusalem and to go to the cross. And this morning he's passing through one of the last towns he'll pass through, the town of Jericho, which really shouldn't be count a town at all. It's a bustling city, which we'll get into as we get into the passage. So let me read the first 10 verses here of chapter 19, and then we'll pray that God would be our teacher and he'd help us to study it well. Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 1. He entered Jericho, that is, Jesus entered Jericho, and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. 
And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer as we ask God to be our teacher? Heavenly Father, we sang earlier in the worship service, and I would pray it again now, that you would help us to see that all of our wealth is in the cross. That you would open our eyes to see the beauty and worth and value of Jesus Christ. Lord, if that's going to happen, we need you to intervene. We need you and this mission you began long ago to continue to have its effect in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope you haven't suspected this of me before, uh, but, but a long time ago, way back in the day, I was given the nickname, Anything for a Buck, Benjamin. So I, I really do hope that you're, like, you're not like, oh yeah, you know, I, that, that is, that's how I always thought of you. Um, that's why I'm pastoring, right? Um, Anything for a buck, Benjamin. And, and so I was given the nickname way back in the day. Um, it, was a, it was a spring kind of day, a cold spring day in Iowa. And we were at my grandparents' house. Um, and they had a swimming pool. And the swimming pool was freezing and it hadn't been cleaned from the winter. And all my cousins were there. And no one's swimming because it's, it's like two months away from the pool even being cold. You know, like it's, it's, it's that type of day. And so my uncle, you can see where this is going. My uncle dared me to swim across the pool for a dollar. And, and like the foolish, you know, 10-year-old I was, um, I did it. I got my, got my name, anything for a buck, Benjamin, as I was known among the cousins and grandparents for a few years. Um, my dad, I did call, I called to confirm the details last night with him. He said it was a, you know, the nickname you give for one event, not like a lifestyle. So that encouraged me, at least. Uh, he said it was, you know, you just got that as the one-off. Um, you know, there's a, there's a humor to that. Uh, you, you know, kids swimming across the pool because his uncle dares him and he gets a dollar. No, no cousins would do it, and, you know, he does. But when a person grows up, if they'll still do anything for a buck, it, it's not as funny anymore. The love of money can lead people to dark places. And, and some of you, when you hear the name Zacchaeus, you, honestly, you might have trouble uh, hearing his Bible story as anything other than a children's story because of the way he's enshrined in the children's song about him. I mean, you've heard the song, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man and... There we go, okay. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And some of you who didn't grow up in a church are like, what in the world just happened here? Like, I've n- um, It is a wonderful thing to grow up in a church and a godly family and all of that, but you also tend to learn some goofy songs. And there is a goofy song about this man named Zacchaeus. But his story is not merely a children's story. If you made a movie about this man Zacchaeus and his backstory and the rough characters he used to run with, it would not be a PG movie. A grown man amassing wealth dishonestly, perhaps even through violence, that's not a children's story. 
And a man who climbs to the top of an organization that's run like organized crime, the, the Jericho tax cartel, if you will. It's not a children's story. But it is Zacchaeus' story. And in some ways, although perhaps not as dramatically, likely not as dramatically, it might be part of your story. Who of us living in America cannot say that in some way, shape, or form, our lives are not influenced by greed and consumerism? I know I feel it. And if you don't feel it, I just submit to you that perhaps it's because you're unaware of it. Like a fish that doesn't know it's wet. I recently read that the average American went into, or goes into, this is from a year ago, so 17 into 19, over Christmas shopping, goes into $1,000 of extra debt. All while the average debt um, of Americans is somewhere around $6,000. Not debt debt, but credit card debt. I'm not counting houses or cars. There are a lot of people hurt in the economic crash in 2008, 2009. I actually even just watched a movie about that time period. I kind of watched it going, man, that was hard to watch because I, I felt some of that sting. But, but it wasn't merely you know, predicated by greedy people out there somewhere on Wall Street that no one really knows. Those people out there. The average home buyer can be swept up in greed. I know um, when I first... Uh, sat, you know, we get, we get married, we sit with a, uh, we rent for a year and we're going to buy a house and we sit with that mortgage lender and I remember seeing the amount that my wife and I were pre-approved for and my heart just kind of started dreaming on the size of house that that would buy. I, I, I actually was thinking about it. I don't think 15 years later I still live in a house as big as I was pre-approved for um, 15 years ago. At the time, we had dual engineering incomes, and I knew I was going to go to seminary, and my wife was going to stay home with our kids, so it would not have been wise to have done that. But, but I just think, I know I can feel swept up into greed and money. It ha- money just has this intoxicating magnetism to it. And it can lead a young kid to swim across a freezing swimming pool. But it can lead adults to places that are not humorous at all. That's what happened to Zacchaeus. And I wonder where it's led you. The good news of this passage, which we'll get into that as we go, is that wherever the love of money has led you, the good news is that Jesus is going there too on a rescue mission. Our passage this morning roughly falls into two halves, although I'm not going to hold too rigidly to that. But there's really a half of it that is out there in the streets of Jericho, and then there's a half that takes place in Zacchaeus' home. But this is just going to be one of those sermons where we sort of retell the story. We're just going to read a few verses, talk about them, and read a few more, and then talk about those few verses. So let's get into it here by reading verses 1 through 3 one more time. They begin like this. He, again Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. That's where we get the line, (laughs) a wee little man, right? I'm sure Zacchaeus is really happy about (laughs) the song we sing about him. But we come up against this city, Jericho, all right? 
It's a huge city center. And I just, I'm going to read a paragraph here from a study Bible I keep on my shelf. It's actually a study Bible I read from in the mornings when I read my own Bible. Maybe it's the one you use. It's the English Standard Version Study Bible. And, and it's, I'm just reading it to give you a taste of what you would experience if you kind of went to all the commentaries. That's the, like books about specific books of the Bible. So if you had done some of the research, you would have bumped up against a lot of this type of thing. So we read this about Jericho. Herod the Great had obtained Jericho from Caesar Augustus and proceeded to build aqueducts, a fortress, a monumental winter palace, and a hippodrome. So a hippodrome, I had to look that up. But it, it, it's the giant horse racing stadiums that you might see when you watch kind of old Roman culture movies. So it's, it's a long, it's really a rectangle with rounded ends and there's a wall in the middle and they would race around it. So a hippodrome in the vicinity of the more ancient town. So ancient town being the town of Jericho mentioned in the Old Testament. One striking feature of the palace, so this palace this guy built, um, is its huge pools. And Jericho boasted a tropical climate and excellent access to water for agriculture. And was a major toll collection point for goods passing east and west. So When you read, or when we read in verse 1 that Jesus is passing through Jericho and and Zacchaeus can't see, don't picture some sort of, you know, obscure alley street, but picture Main Street Jericho on a New Year's Day parade. It's that kind of commotion is what we're talking about here, especially because if your eyes, if you let them go back into just chapter 18, you realize that as Jesus is entering the outskirts of Jericho, he heals a blind man, presumably only causing the crowds to swell more. So that's Jericho. What about Zacchaeus? In the same breath, we're told he has the title chief tax collector. We're told that he's rich. Now, the Bible has categories for righteous rich people and unrighteous rich people, just as it really has categories for um, righteous poor people and unrighteous poor people. There's all four of these categories, and if you don't have all four of them, you're, you know, you're going to misunderstand uh, what God wants you to, how he wants you to view the world. But, but just staying here in the rich category, because that's what we're talking about, Zacchaeus, righteous rich and unrighteous rich. Um, all fall, we taught through the book of Job, and there was a guy named, guy named Job. He had a lot of money. Which category would you have put him? Righteous rich or unrighteous rich? Righteous rich, right? He was, a, he was a good landowner. He had property, and he cared for the people who worked for him. He got his wealth through integrity, and the Lord blessed it. So he's a righteous rich. So I've already said as much, but, but where are we going to put Zacchaeus? Unrighteous rich. See, because we have to understand something about the tax system in that day. Here's how it worked. Israel, so the country of Israel, it's occupied by Rome. And the way Rome got her taxes was by raking them out of Israel using her own citizens. So that's how they extracted taxes. And they did so excessively and often by force. So a contractor, a a leader of of a tax company would put a bid in and they'd say... I'll get you 500 million for this Jericho region. And then they did. And whatever they could take above and beyond that, especially with Roman soldiers standing beside them, they could keep for themselves. So in just two verses, we learn that Zacchaeus had a prominent role in a prominent city. He's a big fish in a big pond. 
But we also learn at the end of verse 3, he's not very tall. In fact, he's so short that he has trouble, even though he's seeking Jesus, which is important because of what's said in verse 10, he's seeking Jesus, he can't see Jesus on account of the crowd. It's kind of a sad picture, but also a little humor to it, maybe. Um, you know, it's like at the farm show, you like, you want to see those pigs or that butter sculpture, and like everybody's there in your way. But here what's funny about it is it, and sad about it is this prominent guy, this business mogul, who in his life and business and industry and entrepreneurship, he's so powerful, nobody wants to move out of the way for him. So let's read what he does, verses 4 and 5. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. I must stay. It's an important word. Think of the humility exhibited here. And and really, it's not so much humility as it is humiliation. A man typically chauffeured around in the finest camels has to climb a tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And he gets way more than he bargained for. Which is always the way it is with Jesus, isn't it? It's a good thing. We always get more than we expect with Jesus. Zacchaeus did. And we read that Jesus didn't just want to stay at his house or that he hoped to stay at his house. But we read of the language of him saying that he must stay at his house. That it's necessary to stay at his house today. And from the way that sounds, it sounds like there's purpose and intent and urgency. Like this meeting, it wasn't arbitrary or incidental. It wasn't a coincidence. From the wording, it makes it sound like Jesus is on a mission. Which, of course, is because he is. Now, the rest of the passage seems to take place in Zacchaeus' home. We read, let me read here, 6, 7, and then... The beginning of eight. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. I presumably received him joyfully into his home. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. To say that like you've got a nine volt battery on your tongue. Just, just mad. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord. So this is at his home. And we'll read what he said in a minute. Note, verse 6, it's still on the screen. He came down and received him joyfully. Sometimes we ask the question, it's like an icebreaker, right? If you could have anyone over to your house for dinner, dead or alive, uh, who would you have? Right? And Christians feel like duty bound to say, well, we'd have Jesus over for dinner, right? We have to say Jesus. Um, and if I was stranded on a desert island and I could only bring one book, I'd bring the Bible, right? Um, we'd be obligated to say it. Well, here, Zacchaeus is stoked to have Jesus over for dinner. The crowd doesn't feel that way, though. But we can sympathize th- with them, can't we? Zacchaeus is not just some generic sinner out there in the world. His love of money had made him a sinner in particular ways who had sinned in particular ways against them. Zacchaeus was rich with their money. The luxury camel he drove was, their, was bought with their money. 
The Egyptian linens he slept on was bought with their money. The pomegranate juice he drank was bought with their money. And we don't really feel the scandal of Jesus having a meal with him with all of the force that it, they would have felt because of the way they understood what it meant to have a meal at someone's house. In their eyes, in most people's eyes, it was to imply that they were in agreement to have table fellowship. was like, like we're, we're one, we're, we get along, we endorse each other. So to feel what Jesus is doing here, it, it, it'd be like me throwing a party. So I throw a party, and, and I invite a lot of people. And I invite, let's just say, the leader of Planned Parenthood. So I'm an evangelical church pastor, and I invite over to my house the leader of Planned Parenthood. And that bothers perhaps some of you. But then, let's just say, after the party, I change my Facebook profile picture, and I've got my arm around her. You're like, ooh. You see, social media is buzzing here about what Jesus has done. They're not just mad at Zacchaeus, they're mad at Jesus. C-SPAN and Fox News, they all have their pundits and they're giving Jesus sharp criticism. That's what I love about Jesus. He doesn't care. (laughs) He doesn't care. It's so easy to love generic sinners out there somewhere in the world, but to love a sinner who's up close who's actually sinned against you, that's hard. But that's what Jesus does when he loves you. And when he loves Zacchaeus. He's loving people that steal his glory and mock his salvation and abuse his people. He loves people, Jesus loves people who love money more than him. He's on a mission He's going to bring salvation to Zacchaeus' home, which we're going to read here in just a moment is going to mean changes for Zacchaeus. He's not going to be the same after today. Let's read verses 8, 9, and 10, the last verses in this passage. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods, note, not half of my salary, half of my goods, I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, and the way the construction is set up in the Greek, it's implying that he, he knows he has. It's not a theoretical if. It's, it's I have and I'm going to. I will restore it fourfold, which was beyond anything the Old Testament would have prescribed. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus didn't have a problem with taxes per se. Like just taxes by themselves. We're going to read in chapter 20 that he pays his own taxes. And way back in chapter 3, I know this is a long way to read or think back to, but in chapter 3... Uh, These people go out to John the Baptist. He's a prophet getting God's people ready for um, Jesus to show up. And in doing that, tax collectors come out to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist says to them, as they're wanting to be baptized, to just collect no more than they're authorized to collect. In other words, you can be a tax collector, you just can't be an extortionist. You can work for the government, you can't just work for organized crime, which are precisely the things Zacchaeus was doing. But no more. He's a changed man. If it was humiliating to be seen high up in that tree, 
I think the moment of this speech, standing at the head of the table, being seen, risen up again, maybe even stood on a chair, I don't know, was more humiliating. It certainly would have been more awkward. Picture a noisy room going immediately silent. And then picture who's in that room. Picture who's at that table. I mean, we don't have a guest list, but the religious, these self-righteous people who are already grumbling that Jesus goes to this guy's house, you know they're not there. Likely it was Zacchaeus' friends, family, and co-workers who were there. The very people who drew benefit from the same dishonest wage. They just, they're sitting there and they listen to Zacchaeus, their boy Zacchaeus, stand up and say he's out of the game. And anything he's ever done wrong in the past, he's going to make right. That's awkward. He's apologizing for stealing cookies to a room full of people that have chocolate on their face and there's crumbs all over the floor. It's awkward. And it's awesome. Zacchaeus has changed. And Jesus knows it too, declaring him to be a true son of Abraham. I think what is going on in that phrase is he's saying, formerly you had this genetic connection to the people of God through your lineage as a Jewish person, but now through repentance and through faith and through what you see in me, Jesus, as the Messiah, you have a spiritual connection, which is the only connection that will matter at the end of time. Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house. This doesn't mean that because Zacchaeus gave away or was promising and pledging to give his things away, in fact, that humility had already been worked in him, it doesn't mean that now he's now earned favor with God. What he's saying, I think, there is that these, all these things are evidence of it. The willingness to be humiliated for Jesus is all evidence that Jesus' mission, mission to seek and save had changed him, just as it's changed many of us. You see, we're talking a lot about Zacchaeus and about the love of money and about Jesus and repentance and faith and grace and salvation. We're talking about a lot about those things, and that's good. But I think what Luke would want us to do is not just talk about Zacchaeus and the love of money and Jesus and grace and faith and salvation. But he'd want us to talk about you and I and the love of money and Jesus and grace and repentance and faith and salvation. So church, how are you doing with money? It's a serious question. What steps are you taking to proactively war against the love of money? And cultivate love for God in your life. A theme in in, in the Bible, but especially in Luke's gospel, I'm persuaded, is that how you handle money is an indicator of the health of your relationship with God. And perhaps if you have a relationship with God at all. See, Previously in Luke's gospel, Jesus said in chapter 16 this. Some of the language will be familiar to some of you. He said, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. 
Luke chapter 16, verse 13. And before that passage, in chapter 12, so that was 16, before that, if we're just going to go back into Luke just a little bit here, in chapter 12, Jesus told his followers, quote, be on your guard against all covetousness. Be on your guard against all covetousness. In other words, greed is something you have to watch out for because it just sort of sneaks up on you. Sort of like weeds in the spring into the summer. Like, if you don't watch out, your whole yard, it just gets covered with them. And after he said that, be on your guard, he told the parable, Jesus did, about a foolish man who stored up treasure on earth and not treasure in heaven, and then he was destroyed for it. And Jesus summarizes that parable by saying, quote, So it will be for everyone who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Luke chapter 12, verse 21. These are Jesus' words, not mine. So again, church, how are you doing with money? It's a serious question. What steps are you taking in your life to proactively war against the love of money and cultivate the love of God? Regular church attendance could be one of those things. I know a pastor elder here at our church who has asked another friend um, to periodically ask him how he's doing with his own money. In fact, this, this, this guy I'm speaking about actually turned over all of his finances, just how much he makes, how much he saves, how much he gives to this person to say, I know money is a very private thing in our culture, and maybe that's not entirely wrong, but he went to this one friend and just said, will you check in with me regularly to make sure I don't get sucked into greed, that I don't become miserly, but stay generous, to make sure I don't hoard money, but rather take gospel risks with my money. And I'm saying all these things because it's a theme in the Bible, but especially in Luke's gospel, that the way we handle money is an indicator of the health of our relationship with God and perhaps whether we have a relationship with God at all. To, To be very clear, this isn't a sermon. I mean, we just preach through passages of the Bible, so next week it'll be something else. But this is what's popping up this week. And so this isn't a sermon where I'm trying to get more tithes. I mean, if you were here just a moment ago when we took the, the, the offering, it wasn't like we were even, like Jim, we were waiting for it and it came, like we're not even like gung-ho trying to take your money and do the offering as fast as we can and take another one. And, you know, it's not what this is about. At all. It's not about some, you know, doing more renovations in the basement or some other church project. I think God has this passage here as a gift to us to make sure that we're not blinded by greed and going to hell. It's one of the significant accusations that's laid against those in the church by those outside the church. And it would be good for us to do housekeeping from time to time. Praise God, he broke into Zacchaeus' life and he breaks into ours. God sought him out and he's seeking us out. I want to close the sermon by just going back into chapter 18. It would have been September or so when we were preaching through it and then a lot lot has happened since then. So just let me jump back into chapter 18 very briefly. It's a story of a rich guy who comes to Jesus asking what he needs to do to go to heaven. 
And they talk for a bit, and, and, and sensing his idol is money, Jesus tells them to sell his money and, or give it away or whatever, however that's phrased, and, 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 and to follow Jesus, and he'll have treasure in heaven. And the rich guy, he hangs his head and walks away, and, and this is what we read. I'm not sure if it'll be on the screen. It looks like the guys are having trouble with the computer turned off. I would say, okay. <laughs> Check Texas's input signal. Probably tech people know it's not Texas. I don't know what TX stands for. It's not the Bible verse I wanted. It may not be up there, which is fine. Just hear these words, or, or if you're holding a Bible on your phone or in your lap, you can scroll back and see it. Verse 24 through 27. Um, Jesus, seeing this, this rich guy, he walks away. Seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult. It's like this public lament. How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. See, the story of Zacchaeus is the story of the miracle of a changed life. Something impossible has happened here. The mission of Jesus to save has done what he said it could do. Zacchaeus, this anything for a buck Zacchaeus, has become anything for Jesus Zacchaeus. He's the guy who's gone through the eye of a needle, though it was impossible to do. What I want to encourage you is that when Jesus grabs a hold of your life, You always get more than you expect, and that's a good thing. Anyone and everyone who comes to Jesus seeking forgiveness doesn't merely get forgiveness for past wrongs that they've committed. They get forgiveness for everything they've done in the past and everything they will do in the future, and they get a warmth of relationship with the Heavenly Father. They get grafted into the community of believers called the church, and they get hope in this life and the life to come. You see, when Jesus said that thing about the camel and the needle and the impossibility, Peter spoke up, as he so often did, And Jesus responded to him. And the way that conversation went is like this. And Peter said, See, see Lord, we've left our homes and followed you. In other words, he's saying, we're disciples. We're not treating the church. We're not treating you. We're not treating your people like Starbucks or Home Depot or Target. We're not in this consumer relationship. We're following you. We're forsaken money. We're, we're, We're in this. We've committed So what's left for us? And Jesus said to them, so Peter and to them, truly I say to you, people he loves, people like us, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children, anyone who's done anything and everything for the kingdom, he says, for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many more times in this life And in the age to come, eternal life. It doesn't mean we just get rich. You come to Jesus, you get rich. But it does mean there's a richness of life, a richness of forgiveness, a richness of community among God's people, a richness of a hope of eternity and forever, the richness of knowing contentment. I I don't know what hard things lie before you as you seek to cultivate a love for God and a love for God 
and renounce a love for money. They were hard things, hard conversations coming Zacchaeus' way after this. But I do know and I do believe and I want to encourage you that whatever sacrifice you've made as you follow Jesus, there's no sacrifice you've made that God won't repay in this life or the life to come many times over. Would you join me in prayer as the worship team comes back up to close us in song? Heavenly Father, as we come to an end of a sermon like this, I'm thankful uh, we just preach through books of the Bible. And, and so whether we expect things or not, you teach us things that are for our good. I'm also aware, Lord, there are probably many here who are experiencing financial difficulties and they are in them through no fault of their own. They haven't defrauded. They're not like Zacchaeus in so many ways. And yet there's problems, there's challenges. There's more month than there is paycheck. And so there's probably, probably should have made a thousand qualifications and there wasn't time for any of that. So Lord, I just pray for us. As a church, as your people, for wherever we're at on these issues, we would look to you. And you would be a rock beneath our feet. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us and encourage us. And give us the courage, Lord, for those that do need to make changes in their life. To have that changed life that Zacchaeus had described to us in this passage. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.